Welcome to the Commercial Disco, a voyage of commercial discovery. This episode is proudly brought to you by CSIRO, Australia's national science agency and innovation catalyst. Explore the commercialization of great ideas across deep tech and science. Immerse yourself in conversations with the ambitious minds shaping Australia's unique innovation landscape. Discover their insights into what's needed to bring these remarkable ideas to life. Hello and welcome to the Commercial Disco. I'm James Riley, Editorial Director at InnovationOz.com. Today I'm talking to Dr. Jihan Kanga, Founder and Chief Executive at Rux Energy, and Nicole Lane, Ecosystems and Communications Manager, also at Rux Energy. Welcome. Thanks so much, James. It's really uh, great to be on the show. So I'm going to start with you, Jihan. We're going to be talking a lot about the hydrogen industry or the hydrogen sector or hydrogen generally today. Let's just start. If you can tell me a little bit about Rux Energy, where is the company up to? What do you do? Which part of the hydrogen value chain are you focused on? So Rux Energy is an advanced materials company. We make these materials called metal organic frameworks or MOFs that radically increase the volumetric density or the efficiency of the hydrogen storage system. So hydrogen storage is notoriously difficult. And so we're here to, to solve that problem. And we're also coordinating the ecosystem around, you know, bringing the supply chain together so that we can not just solve the storage piece, but we can also solve distribution and supply, which is a really major pillar of hydrogen. Okay, let's step through that a little bit, if you like. All of the conversations that certainly that I hear tend to be around, we're talking about green hydrogen, we're talking about electrolyzers and production, but very little up to this point that I hear in terms of the economics of it around storage and transportation. I don't know what the economics look like. I would have thought that the storage and transportation and distribution would be a, a far greater cost than the actual production, would that? It is, yeah. And it, there are actually you know, three major pillars within the hydrogen ecosystem. So there's production, which is pillar one, which is all about how do you make hydrogen and you've got to make it as cheap as possible. And the US Department of Energy's got a you know, one to one and a half dollar per kilo target. Storage and distribution supply of hydrogen, that's the second pillar. And there's US Department of Energy also has another target around that. And that piece also has to get below one and a half dollars per kilo in terms of the entire cost of storage and supply has to fit into that envelope. And then this last piece, which is the application of hydrogen. So how do you use it? And that also has to increase in efficiency because currently we use fuel cells, but there's also internal combustion engines. There's other ways you can use it. You can use it for heat. And those systems are still in development and to improve their efficiency. And really, the big challenge, so we see in real data in the UK, the current production costs for, for hydrogen are sort of 5 to 10 pounds per kilo. But if you are a user of hydrogen, you are paying no less than 300 pounds per kilo. And that's because there's a huge demand for green hydrogen right now for application trials, for testing new aerospace systems. And really, the supply chain is controlled by a bunch of monopolist groups. Uh, and so they're taking everyone for a bit of a ride. And that's probably not going to last for a long time. But we actually really need to solve that immediately because it could create a, a bit of a crisis point in the whole ecosystem where people stop trying to trial these systems. So we really need to think holistically from an ecosystem point of view. And, and that's actually why Nicole is sort of leading a lot of the ecosystem work and, and why she's on this particular podcast. 
Why don't I move to Nicole now? Because you talk about an ecosystem within the hydrogen sector. What are we actually talking about? What are the different parts of it? Who are the different players? That's a really great question. So it's something that we've sort of learned quite recently ourselves. We've been lucky enough to be sent on a few different international delegations, so both to the US and Singapore within quite a short period of time this year. And it became very obvious to us that when we're looking at these decarbonisation goals, people are looking at, like Jahan identified, the production cost of hydrogen, and they're not looking at the supply cost or the distribution cost of hydrogen. But beyond that, there's also this real lack of current intel on how we're actually going to do it. So it's not even the making of it or the cost of it, it's how are we going to get hydrogen into a territory? So say, for example, with Singapore, you've got a country that can't produce hydrogen itself, that has complicated relationships with its neighbours. And so the import of hydrogen on that level is going to be really tricky. Then you add another factor that there's a, a bureaucratic process that you know we kind of found out by accident from one of our client meetings that you, know, you need to go through a specific approval process for every 200,000 tonnes of hydrogen that you want to import or even move around Singapore. So there's all these specificities based on region. And we're kind of in this space where we're at the forefront of the curve right now just because of the way that we're going on these Australian delegations. So we very quickly realised, okay, what we're going to have to do is stop thinking about we have a technology that can enable decarbonisation we have to actually build the entire local team to get that happening. So that's kind of, uh, you know, Jahan's spoken to the UK relationships that we have. Um, and, you know, we're teaming up with local universities like Cranfield University. And then we've got the Freeport East hub, the Freeport East port system and major gas networks all coming together to do this research into how do we deliver. So that's what we're speaking to around ecosystem predominantly. But for us, it also speaks to the fact that we have to be collaborative across the entire decarbonisation and net zero movement. So this sort of like old way of doing things, this monopoly where you've got one company that's responsible for the supply and distribution of everything, that's not going to work for a net zero future. So for us, ecosystem also speaks to bringing all of our amazing startup friends with us and sharing knowledge rather than kind of keeping it as something that just we know. Yeah, and in addition to that, speaking to those unit economic piece, that just leveraging the, the piece that Nicole was talking about, the UK, you know, with, with that Freeport East Consortium, that there's sort of 40-ish commercial partners and a bunch of government agencies and universities that are in that, you know, really, we're all looking at all of the counterfactuals for all of the different technologies. So like really comparing in a like-for-like -like scenario, how do you move hydrogen from here to there, right? And, you know, moving hydrogen from A to B in a certain area versus, so say, moving it from the coast in the UK to London versus, say, moving it from the coast in Australia to Singapore, those are two very different, you know, those are apples and oranges, right? You cannot compare those. They're very different vectors. One's using barge and rail. The other's using a, a giant ship. And we actually need to do the studies. We need to look at how we plan these pilots and really understand from the point that the electron hits the solar cell all the way to when it's turning the wheel, turning a turbine in Singapore, or running a chemicals, you know, doing the heat in the chemicals factory in, in London. We need to know that end-to-end -end cost. We need to know the learning curve because new technologies are going to be a bit more expensive and then they're going to come down a, a learning curve pathway. And then we need to then take that data and go, okay, how do we now hack the learning curve? Like, how do we 
make this learning curve go faster so that we can actually hit the target. And so that's the methodology. And having everyone around the table, then they can all come to agreement and say, okay, that's the plan. Let's all go. So you're not stepping on each other's toes. You're not like doing double work. And currently, we have all these hydrogen hubs in Australia and they don't really talk to each other because they're siloed, right? And then collaborating is not easy. You know, it's like really hard, especially in Australia, where it's so geographically spread. It's really hard just to get everyone in a meeting and saying, how do we do this? It's much harder than in the UK. Let me ask you this. So you've been to the UK, Singapore, you've had uh, discussions in the US. What is the conversation like in the US or the UK compared to this country? What do you hear there that you don't hear here? Is it a maturity of the conversation? Is it a sophistication of the business? What are you hearing there that you don't hear here or vice versa? Look, it's very different for each country. So in the UK, they have less funding, but they've been working on the problem a lot longer. So they have very, very detailed plans. They have a plan for every single industry vertical. You know, they've got a plan for how are you going to decarbonize agrochemicals? They've got a plan for how do you decarbonize buses? Yeah, they've got a plan for how do you decarbonize different kinds of trucks, not just trucks in general, but they've classified each truck and then done battery versus hydrogen for each classification. And the plan means this happens when, right? So they know they've got a target in one year, they've got to hit this. And then that means in two years, they do this. And it goes all the way out, right? 26 years. They know what's coming and they've got the plan. And the plan detail is really detailed to 2030. And so they've just three months ago, they did an assessment on the plans and they were like, we're not going to actually make our targets because we're running a little bit behind on X, Y, and Z. So now they're going to change the plan. They're going to reevaluate. They're going to shift the levers. Australia doesn't have a plan. Like we've got a strategy. Strategy needs updating. But we don't have a granular idea of every single industry. So we need to do that. US, they're coming at it very late, right? They're really catching up but they've just thrown an absolute mozzer of cash, you know, $700 billion. They've got $350 billion in grants and another $350 billion in loans. And then there's more funding coming through. And Nicole was in the room for these roundtables. And they just showed the level of detail in some of their documentation. I mean, these are thousands of pages of new plans that they're coming up with. And they're they're launching, I think, just in a couple of weeks, they're doing a, a supply and distribution sort of thought leadership piece from the White House will come out in the next couple of days and we'll give this kind of like these incremental sort of changes to the plan as they develop. And it's, it's going to take them a few more years, I think, to kind of get that. But there's enough funding that everyone's now running. Can I just ask, sorry to jump in, but for a company like yours, Rux Energy, there must be a temptation to go to the US, to go to the UK, to go to that place where there is a sophisticated conversation around what to do, plus a bucket of money by the sounds of it. So Jahan was actually speaking on a panel last night where this very topic came up, you know, the cost of living in Sydney and how that impacts startups directly. And, you know, so we, we were having a really frank conversation about that in terms of what other places in the world would work. And then on the flip side, there's this real drive that we have. And it's something that Jahan built from the very beginning of the company of having sovereign manufacture and having the tech benefit Australia. So I think for us, there's this real balance at the moment that purely practically, we will have to have offices, manufacturing plants, factories in every territory, potentially, that we're going to be delivering. That's kind of when we went to the US, what we were looking for as part of that delegation was, okay, location help, we want some contacts, you know, and that would be really great. But then 
after our first meeting, we had to completely change our pitch because, yeah, and speaking back to your last question, there is such a willingness to really directly help. And in Australia, what we're dealing with is this national cultural cringe that we have where you have to go away to prove yourself. And so then we're also dealing with the distance, how far away it is. We don't have the advanced manufacturing here that we need yet. But what I think that, you know, Rux is really passionate about, right? Because again, we're not just a tech company. We are actually trying to create new models of business, new models of company structure. And what we want to do is we want to create this blueprint that we can apply to different territories. You know, we want to have that tech benefit Australia first and foremost, and then share that with the world. So I think for us, it's going to be a balance of both. I mean, we're going to have to effectively quintuple the company size that we have by the end of the year, just to even deal with the current sort of work that we have. So to just to jump in, what, what does that mean? Are you talking in terms of staff? Yeah, so I mean... So where are you now? <laughs> it's a really interesting question for us to answer. We should know the answer, but we're sort of taking on two staff a week at the moment from everything from chemical engineering to ops techs. And probably by next week, I think we'll have 18 staff. <laughs> um, but a lot of those people are currently sort of part-time contractors because one of the challenges of being a startup is to even hire people. First off, you have to think about what is this role going to be? How am I going to delegate the work that I was doing to a new person? How are we going to work out the tasks that need to be done when we're all new at this ourselves? So then there's also, okay, we're going to have to have manufacturing plants and all of this kind of stuff. So what's the stat that Jahan gives us? 100,000 people in hydrogen in Australia by 2030 and a million in the world? Is that, am I getting that right, Jahan? Yeah, I think so. And when we should expect to have a million workers within hydrogen alone within Australia, if we get the policy settings right, because of those three pillars, you're going to have several tens of thousands of workers in the production space. But, you know, the supply chain is not that easy and it's going to require a lot of workers, a lot of regional workers, because it's a many-to-many ecosystem. Lots of farms are going to be generating hydrogen and selling it up the road just to the local truck station. And that's going to require workers. So, yeah, so just to answer your question, James, yeah, we are growing fast. We're going to be 40 or 60 people by the end of the year, depending on if we can find the right people. And it's hard, right? It's hard to scale a company. And we want to make sure that we do it right and uh, make sure that we're not going to change our culture because this culture is such a core part of actually what we're delivering to the world. Let me ask you this. So it's difficult to scale a company, obviously, but you're actually scaling an industry which involves massive reconstruction of infrastructure. So there's been some massive proponents of green hydrogen production. I'm thinking about Andrew Forrest and maybe Alan Finkel have been talking along those lines. But there's also been plenty of people who will say that hydrogen is too hard, too costly, too expensive and difficult to scale. So against that backdrop, what kind of government policies could be put in place that would enable that? We have to take a a really systems thinking approach to policy settings. It's not just about technology commercialization. It's also about education. It's about immigration policy. It's about actually looking at how we're going to do skills transition. Because if you're going to have a million people in Australia working in hydrogen, they're not going to come from hydrogen because no one works in hydrogen right now. And Nicole is a great example of that. She toured some of the big artists like Amanda Palmer and and worked in the music sector there. And I pulled her in on the upside and uh, to help out. But it's it's going to be complex to like to build this out. So the key things with policy, I think we need a lot more funding across sort of all areas of climate tech, really. It's not just hydrogen, but 
we need to take a kind of all technologies all at once approach because we're not going to know exactly which technologies are going to get scaled the best, which ones are going to deliver the biggest decarbonization. Some are going to be more successful than others. Some might work at a small scale, but just might not be scalable. We might think that they're scalable and then we, we try and build them and it, it's just maybe too hard to manufacture it at a you know, gigascale. So, and we see this in the battery world. You know, There are some battery technologies scale wonderfully well and, and other battery technologies don't scale so well. And you know, if you just say, is a battery scalable? People just go, yeah, of course it is. But actually, anyone in the industry sector will know that sometimes it just doesn't work. And so we have to throw everything that we've got at this. We've got 26 years. So we've just got to be really mission critical about the approach that we take and then bring the education department into the tent, bring immigration into the tent. So we're not having these siloed chats. Yeah, it's, it's really important that we actually bring all these uh, the departments into the tent you know, and also like, you know, the Department of Industry, Department of Science, like everyone's and agriculture, everyone's got to be in the tent so that they all play a role and be coordinated on that front. So there's no one's going to be a blocker, you know. So if we need a whole lot of specialists in a certain niche area of manufacturing, for example, we can actually just bring those workers to Australia. Like we don't do advanced manufacturing at an enormous scale in Australia. So we're probably going to have to bring automation and robotics and AI for manufacturing specialists to Australia from Germany, from Taiwan, you know, from the US and bring that expertise here so we can go hard, go fast. They can then train the next generation of Australians who can help build our future. I love this concept of all technologies all at once and to solve the challenge that uh, you're putting forward. It is a massive challenge. Can I just ask, I mean, there would be plenty of people who would say the jury is out on whether or not hydrogen can be an answer for a whole bunch of different applications. What would you say to that? There's no alternative for, for several industries. So hydrogen has to happen for a number of the hardest to abate sectors. So most people think about energy in terms of their own lives. And so they think about energy in terms of their residential apartments. You know, they like cooking gas and electricity for the lights. And, and maybe they've seen a bit of light industry in their neighborhoods, you know, like mechanics shops. There's a number of areas that can be electrified, but there's some areas where electrification is really cumbersome and very, very expensive. And we're talking about very, very large-scale industrial heat. We're talking about you know heavy transport, marine, aviation, the heavy trucks. There are trucks in Australia that pull 65 tons of payload and they drive several thousand kilometers. You know, they'll drive 1,800 kilometers. And, you know, no one likes to admit that maybe that driver might stop once. In, in that, and they're not stopping to fill up. They're stopping just to have the quick quarter pounder and on the way down, then just going. They cannot afford to change their business model because their margins are very, very small. You know, these freight businesses, they can't afford to spend two hours charging every sort of four hours. Like they need to go when they need to go. And I think that's a big challenge. Aviation's the other one, you know, like even hydrogen, I think most of the reports at the moment, the theoretical uh, range of a hydrogen plane is, is probably in the like 3,500 kilometers, maybe 4,000 kilometers. And that's, that's less than kerosene, right? It is an unsolved problem in some spaces. And we have to really invest in deep IP innovation, deep tech innovation. And there's ways to solve it that are lateral. You don't necessarily always have to think of the fuel. You Maybe you can make the plane lighter through composite materials. Maybe you can make the engines more efficient. And so you go a lot further for every kilogram of hydrogen that they're using. And, and all of that gets you there for that Perth to London trip that's such a famous leg for, for Qantas. I'd love to add something to that as well, which is that 
What we're seeing on our travels, like on these delegations that we're on, is that the tech is there. There is so much innovation happening right now. Something that we were talking about at Tech 23 last week or the week before is previously like the most efficiency that you could expect from an internal combustion engine was 35%. 35%, yeah. And then up to 65? 60 for fuel cells. Yeah, up to 65 with solar. And we have friends in the UK who are making an internal combustion engine at 70% efficiency. And not that many people know about them yet. And they're creating completely world-changing technology. We have friends that are generating energy from waves. We have all of these incredible people in our networks. So in terms of, you know, is this possible? It absolutely is. Like Jahan says, if we're actually working collaboratively and if we're thinking creatively and systematically. And one of the things that's really happened for me, because as Jahan mentioned, I'm a, an import from, from the arts and from education. And I call it like the Uber driver effect. Whenever I'm on an, in an Uber on my way to a conference and they ask me what I'm doing and I tell them, you know, I'll have Uber drivers tell me, can you please come and speak at my kid's school? Because I have 12 and 13 year olds who are having existential crisis because they think that the world is going to end. And, you know, I'm like, okay, we need to develop a schools program to inspire people because it is still going to be an incredibly hard mission that involves like world collaboration in a way we've never seen before. But my existential dread has actually disappeared since working with Rux for the last 18 months and particularly in the last six months because the innovation that is there is phenomenal. And what's also happening is there is a global tipping point, right? I've only been sort of going to these conference events for about six months. And even in that time, I've seen a massive change. You have CEOs of global banks publicly stating we will be divesting from fossil fuels and looking to invest in clean tech. You have incubators that are popping up for it, bilateral agreements between multiple countries around the world. So we're finally starting to pull the threads together. And that's the thing that's put a fire in my belly. You know, like after COVID, I would have been quite happy to never work again if I could have gotten away with it. But when Jahan asked me to come and work with Rux, I'd seen what Jahan was doing for the last sort of decade since their PhD used to say to them a decade ago, you're going to change the world one day. And now I'm in that space. And it's such a privilege, right? Because I thought that working with some of the best musicians in the world was inspiring. You work with some of the best tech founders in the world. These people, like they're geniuses who are also committed to really creating change. Musicians are also always going to love them. But the drive that I see there I finally feel like we might be able to sort of stop the world from going to hell in a handbasket. Well, that would be good. <laughs> I don't know. Existential tread might be a, a part of my makeup, but I definitely still have it. I'm talking to Jihan Kanga, founder and CEO of Rux Energy and Nicole Lane, also from Rux Energy. Jihan, tell me, what's it like in this area in clean tech? Like, that was quite inspiring what Nicole was just saying. But what's it like to found a clean tech company in this country, not everyone is on board. How's that journey been? Yeah, look, I think it was pretty hard early on because there are very few deep tech investors in Australia. I think there are five. And just compare that, like one of our friends over in, uh, in the US who I was speaking to, who's based in Denver, Colorado, he has 500 investors, clean tech investors in his own private book. You know, like, so we have five in total in Australia, and he has 500 just on his like little email list of friends who he's happy to pick up the phone to. And so it's kind of like the scale of challenge 
in funding companies is huge and it's definitely held us back. You know, like we would be further ahead if we managed to find the kind of funders that really understood the challenge as well. Because at a clean tech, deep tech startups, you can't go and raise a million dollars at a $5 million valuation because you actually have to raise $50 million or $100 million. You're, you're biotech. So you have to raise an enormous amount of cash. You have to build and build and build and collaborate. And your horizons are like seven years or eight years before you turn your first dollar of revenue on average for, for most of these deep techs. And that's just not, not a culture that we have in Australia. We just don't know how to do that. And investors are terrified that they're going to lose all their money which is valid. It's, it's really high risk. So I think that there is a kind of like a market failure that we have in Australia. And it's a symptom of being a very small country, but we also really punch above our weight on the innovation front. We have a lot of great IP, a lot of great research. You know, we lead on a number of industry verticals and horizontals, the AI and composites. And you know, there's a lot of great stuff that comes out of Australia. I'll just start winding up. When you look at things like the National Reconstruction Fund or the Industry Growth Program, Clean tech is identified as a priority area. Do you get solace from that? Like the NRF, it's $15 billion. If a portion of that goes to clean tech, it should de-risk some additional VC being thrown at this. Is that something that gives you heart? Yeah, it does. It's a great start. I think people look at $15 billion and they think that's a lot of money. Miranda Taylor, the CEO of Nero, which is now wrapped up, which is one of the big energy growth centers, she mentioned that their study on the transition showed that Australia needs about $685 billion of investment to do the transition over the next 26 years. And when we think about that, that doesn't all have to be government funded, but certainly... That's a submarine-sized investment, isn't it? It's a lot of investment because we have to change a lot of infrastructure. Like, There's a lot of stuff and we have to support businesses. I mean, there's a lot of companies in Australia. I had a friend who worked for one of the biggest food and beverage companies in Australia, and they just could not afford to do any transition work in the next 24 months because of the inflation crisis. Because basically, they started running a loss, and all of the money that they set aside for starting to electrify was just like, well, this is a nice to have. Let's just push this out to 2025, right? And it's a really good example. The CEO of that company, ultimately, they have an obligation to the investors not to run the company into the ground and to run at a total loss. So that company's not going to do any decarbonization work for two years. And so, again, that delay, these things will keep happening. Inflation crisis will come up, wars will happen. We can't let that stop us. We have to have a plan to provide companies, to provide not-for-profits, to provide councils, to look at how they're going to do this. Because none of our P&Ls across any organization in Australia has provisions available to just say, we can now spend a million dollars just throwing up solar panels or looking at storage solutions or creating a microgrid together. And so that's that thing where government needs to sort of, again, think systemically. NRF is going to be fantastic, especially for sort of key manufacturing technologies. But we need a big climate fund that is all sectors, all industries. How do you decarbonize ag? How do you decarbonize mining? How do you decarbonize buses? How do you decarbonize you know, your local fruit grocers and small retail and because, you know, 50% of the businesses, I think, in Australia or 50% of employees work in SMEs or something. Like SMEs are a massive thing in, in Australia. So how do we help small businesses, you know, with their decarbonization? I think that granular approach is something that we need to sort of take. Okay, NRF, great start. We need to launch that. We need to go hard on that. We need to get the money out the door. Okay, what's next? <laughs> and it's just like, 
And how do we put the plan in place that gives us, you know, the granular, like, dot, 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 every single year, where are we at, where are we at, all the way to 2049. And then in 2049, we're like, hopefully, the next year, it's just results. <laughs> because it's, you can't invest in 2049 to get expected results by 2050. It's just, by 2049, everything needs to be already in flight. All right, I'm going to say thank you very much to Jihan Kanga and Nicole Lane. The thing I'm going to take from this conversation is all technologies all at once. It sounds like you guys are all in and you're calling on the rest of Australia to go all in. Thank you so much for joining us on this. It's been a really illuminating conversation. Really incredible. Thank you. Thanks so much, James. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Commercial Disco Podcast, proudly brought to you by CSIRO. Don't forget to like, subscribe and leave a review wherever you heard us. For the latest on tech, innovation and public policy, visit innovationoz.com. And stay connected with us on social media to ask questions or suggest future guests. Until next time, this is the Commercial Disco wishing you an inspired week ahead.